Thanks, Jordan. Now, I'm a bit disorganized this morning because David is usually the person who um, carries the pulpit around and everything, and I've done a bit of that myself. I think I've actually torn a muscle. Um, <laughs> so I might have to supervise as well. Um, I'm just looking forward to the fact that there will be no shivering in Fiji. Um, but I'm going to actually uh, take a little time to, to get my electronic devices ready, but, and I'm going to do that by inviting Barry up here, and he's actually going to read the scriptures from Mark that my message this morning is uh, coming from. And uh, I want you to, because the message I'm going to bring is a little different and it surprised me when I came up with it. Um, <laughs> I know that sounds interesting. But I want you to see if in listening to Barry, as he reads that particular scripture through, whether you can actually see where I'm coming from before I even give you the punchline. So we, we all sit there. Um, what do I do with that other microphone? Oh, Barry's got it. Oh, people are organized. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 30. It's actually all up there as well if you need it. Right. I had it, but it... Hello? I had it, but it jumped. It's 29 degrees in Fiji today. I just thought I'd say that. <laughs> all right, Mark 9, verse 30. Leaving that region, they travelled through Galilee... Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted them to spend he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, "The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead." They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in the house, Jesus asked his disciples, "What were you discussing out on the road?" But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. <laughs> he sat down and called the twelve disciples over to him and said, Whoever wants to be the first must take the last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. Wow, that was confusing. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If anyone, you, if anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it will be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large milestone hang around your neck. Wow. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to, be, it's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter into eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eyes cause you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye 
than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the maggots never die and fear never goes out. For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but it loses its flavour. How do you make it salty again? Sorry, but if it loses its flavour, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. Who's confused? There's a lot going on there, isn't there? And when I looked at that uh, passage of Scripture, I thought, how am I going to make sense out of something which is so variable from beginning to end? And then I, I read it again, and I read it again, and I read it again. Suddenly I thought, it's all the same. Now, I don't know whether that was me being silly or that, that was a revelation, but here goes. This thing's waterproof, isn't it, George? <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> Thanks, Brenda. Okay. Let's just start with verse 30. It says, Leaving that region, they travelled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. So I think that's a key phrase here. What happens after this is because Jesus wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. And so he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He'll be killed but three days later, he will rise from the dead. Now, can you imagine, this is you and me. And I think the ne next sentence would apply to us as well. They didn't understand what he was saying. But they were afraid to ask what he meant. Have you ever been to a meeting like that? <laughs> Somebody says something and you still think, what do they mean? But you still think, well, everybody else is nodding. I'm not going to put my hand up because I'm going to look stupid. And so... The disciples were in this, the same boat. Jesus had brought them aside. He hadn't told anybody where he was going and he was there to teach them. And the first thing he says, they're looking at each other thinking, you ask, you ask. I'm not going to ask. I don't want to look stupid. But they didn't know what he meant. And if you look through your Bibles, if, if yours is the same as mine, it divides the, the next three passages of Scripture into three. And mine says, the first bit is Jesus again predicts his death. The second bit is the greatest in the kingdom. And the third subheading is using the name of Jesus. And I looked at those, and if you read the scripture under those headings, they, they make sense. But I think they're really, really misleading because they separate the passage into three distinct areas, which I think aren't there. I mean, they might describe the surface, but underneath, that these stories are actually interconnected. Not only that, they're connected to some of the things that we, we heard about last week. Uh, the transfiguration, for instance, that Peter, James and John get to see is actually referenced subtly in this section. So what I want to show you here is Jesus is actually instructing his disciples in something that they know nothing about. Who's ever felt that? <laughs> yep, I'm going to learn something about something I don't know anything about and I'm not sure I want to. And, th and they're in that boat. He is actually instructing his disciples in the operating procedures of an organization which he is going to launch upon his death called church. And they're unaware of this. In fact, if you read through this scripture, 
with the right mindset, you can see parallels between what Jesus is saying here and the constitution of C3 Church Norwood. The same principles are embodied in it. And that the disciples, of course, have no idea at this moment that he's planning it. And they have no idea that he intends them to be the directors of this new venture. It's like getting a group of random people and then just saying, look, by the way, I've got this business plan and I'm going to make, put you in charge of it. And they're all sitting around thinking, but I'm not in business. I don't know anything about business plans. I'm, I'm a fisherman. I'm a tax collector. I, I'm, who are we to actually get involved in this business venture? But they're afraid to ask. So they're just going along. And so there are about six points about organisational structure that he, he talks about. First thing, he informs them of the underpinning guiding principle of the organisation. He then outlines the, his expectation of the behaviour of the board of directors. He instructs them regarding the personnel makeup of the organisation, who he wants in the organisation. He describes the ideal recruitment process. He outlines the principle of discipline for unacceptable behaviour. And he describes the personal development goals of the organisation. Now, did anybody get that when Barry read that passage? Me neither. <laughs> Not well. I did when Barry read it because I know what I'm talking about. Put it this way, I know what I'm going to say. <laughs> so, okay, let's break that down. He informs them of the guiding principle of the organisation. What is the guiding principle of the, of the church? What is the, the bedrock, foundational belief or principle that the church is based on? Mark 9.31, the second part. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. The basis of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are a club, a poorly organised, and that we're a club. Let's just go, go there. See, the guiding principle of the church is that we serve a living God. We don't serve a myth or a flight of fancy or a clever philosophy, but a God who sent his son to die for our sins and to be resurrected after three days. That is the church. That is what we believe. That is what everything we base our actions on is based on the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Our sins were forgiven and he paved the way for eternal life. So, we know, we know the principle of the organisation. He then outlines the behaviour he expects of the board of management. Verse 35, he sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Can you imagine a company today saying to the CEO, we're going to put you in charge so that you've got to be a slave for everybody else and you don't get paid very much either. They'd say, look, sorry, I'm going to find another job. But ministry is servanthood. I speak to a lot of people who have a desire to be in ministry. And I mean, being in ministry, anybody who has a desire to be in ministry is dangerously insane. Because a lot of people get in because they have gifts. God, God has given us all gifts, right? And here, 
And we, we need to be able to express those gifts. And a lot of people think that ministry, as in doing what I'm doing, is the way to do it. Because, that, because people get to see your gifts. And so people are looking for self-importance because of what God has given them to get into ministry. And most, and most of those people, and, and the, don't get me wrong, I mean, if, if you want your gifts to be used by God, don't, don't feel bad about that. I mean, the disciples here were walking along the road ar- arguing about who was going to be greatest. You know, what, what's your gift? Prophecy. Well, what sort of things can you prophesy about? I can prophesy better than you. Perhaps I should be king. Um, there was this sort of discussion going on about, you know, well, I doubt if they did, because this was before the Holy Spirit came, but it's sort of like, you know, do you speak in tongues? Yeah, what are yours like? No, mine sound better. Um, all, all these arguments about, you know, um, what gifts God has given you and the fact, I mean, I hear it so many times, I left that church because my gifts weren't being used. I won't say anything about that. See, Peter, James and John had witnessed the transfiguration and part of that discussion around greatness revolved around what they believed was the favour that they had been shown by Jesus in witnessing this event that somehow made them better than the other disciples. And Jesus very, very quickly put that to rest. It's not, it, it's not the gifts we have that make us great. The great thing about gifts is if we have a... What do you do with a gift? Has ever, anybody ever been and bought a gift what's it usually for somebody else you go and buy a birthday gift tomorrow and (laughs) and it's not often i mean actually i have had experiences with other people who have said i I went in and i bought the gift i liked it so much i kept it (laughs) but most of the time we buy gifts because we want to give them to somebody else God gives us gifts to bless other people. Our gifts are actually to lift other people up. In fact, if we're surrounded by people who are doing well and and are being blessed by our actions and we don't get noticed, that's perfect leadership. I mean, there's a a church in the Philippines that we had, uh, Joey Bonifacio, was he from that church? His his lead pastor can walk into his church, I mean, there's 25,000 people, so... It's funny about double our size. Um, he can walk into his church and nobody knows who he is because he doesn't occupy a position of importance. He's just built a church of 25,000 people. So he's not important, but he is. But it, it, he, you understand the meaning. He doesn't, he's not self-important. And so, you know, the disciples, after this argument about who is great, discovered in the long run, of course, that true ministry for them was holding on to their faith up to the point of martyrdom. Hardly a good PR sort of statement for a job description, is it? Yep, if you get this job, by the way, people may hate you and they may even kill you for what you believe. Any takers? We are all ministers of the gospel and we're all called to be servants. That is the behaviour expected of the board of governors, if you like, or the people who run the church. He he talked to them about the sort of people he wanted in the organisation. Verse 36 says, He put a little child among them. Taking the child into his arms, he said, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but my Father who sent me. 
So there's two ways you can look at that. The, the first thing is Jesus wants people of faith. The, the, the child was a representation of the innocent faith that people come into this church with. The other thing that says that if we accept those people, guess who else comes? Jesus and his dad. With every single person of faith who comes into this church, Jesus comes with his father. So Jesus wants to be in the church. God the Father wants to be in the church. And he wants to be in there with everybody else who has faith in him, no matter how much faith, in the church. So instead of going out and looking for people with great faith, people who are useful, have great skills, perhaps are good CEOs or planners or, or preachers or sort of strong so they can set up and um, have lots of free time so they can come to working bees. Instead of looking for people like that, Jesus says, just take people with a little bit of faith. Grow them, protect them, look after them, welcome them. Because in doing so, guess what? My father and I come too. So the makeup of the church is simple. Everybody's invited. No matter whether they've got a small amount of faith or a large amount of faith, we're called to invite them in because in doing so, it invites God. We are a community of faith. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're called to encourage people's faith. It warns us not to compare the faith of others to our own. And there are scriptures that talk about the fact that we're not to judge people's faith. It talks about, you know, if you're not worried, worried about eating food that's been placed before idols, that's fine. But if somebody else is, don't do it in front of them because you may affect their faith. So we're actually called to be very sensitive to the faith of people because the church is made up of faith-filled people and we're called to nurture and protect that faith. He then goes on to describe the ideal recruitment process. John said to Jesus, verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Good to see that it's still happening back then. Don't stop him, Jesus said. Nobody who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of, evil of me. Now what that odd sentence says that if you're, say, if you're doing miracles in Jesus' name, it's unlikely that you'll be able to speak evil of Jesus anytime soon if you're using his name for that. And, and, and so th- there's the recruitment. You just find people who are doing things in Jesus' name and they're in. That's all we need. It's not a question of saying, well, you can only use Jesus' name if you're in our group. <laughs> it still amazes me that the disciples were a bit like that. Uh, and I love what he says next. Anyone, in verse 40, he says, anyone who is not against us is for us. How often do we hear the reverse? If you're not for me, you're against me. My way or the highway. And yet Jesus says, look, if they're not stoning you, they're on your side. Anybody who's, who's not against you is with you. If, if somebody is doing something good in the name of Jesus, we need to applaud it, not condemn it. Imagine if we invited people to join our group and just, instead of just pointing and saying, you're not in our group. Go away, go away, come on. Out, out, out. It's a question of, wow, you love Jesus. We love Jesus. Hey, we've got something in common. Let's get together. Let's use the name of Jesus to set more people free. Let's cast out more demons. Let's do it together. I mean, the Bible tells us that one person can drag a hundred horses or something. 
whatever. And two people can do a thousand, so it's a lot more if there's two of you. That's all I'm saying. Um, you can look up the scripture. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, it's not part of my notes. So. so if we invited people to join our group, imagine how that can enrich the kingdom of God rather than splintering it by pushing them away so that there's more different groups. He then outlines the principles of discipline for unacceptable behavior. Verse 42 says, If you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. Now, to us that seems a little harsh. But I looked it up and apparently that was something they did back then. Uh, if you were, did something fairly heinous or naughty, they would tie you to a large hunk of rock and throw you in the sea. Um, but I'm not sure that he was actually saying that was a good corporate strategy. But he is trying to get across that contributing to somebody's sin by either your actions or inactions or by the example that your life gives is very serious. And not just serious as in you know, the organization of the church. thinks it's, Jesus thinks it's serious. He goes to great pains in the following passages to get across the idea that this sort of behavior really ticks him off. And, and I'm, I love this next section of Scripture, and I won't read it out. I think Barry did a great, great job of that. But it talks about mutilating yourself um, to get into heaven. And it, it even blames things. It says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, see, Jesus is lying here. I, mean, I always think it's funny when people come to me and say, the Bible is the inviolate, absolute, true word of God. There is not a false word in there. And, it, and you think, yes, there is. Jesus lies in the Bible. He tells untruths. He does not want you to cut your hand off or pluck your eye out or chop your foot off. He is not implying that parts of your body can make you sin. It's not like, oh, my eye has caused me to see a naked woman. I'll pluck it out. No, your eye didn't do that. You did that and you used your eyes to do it. They're innocent. I did not. My fist smacked into some person's face. I'll cut it off. Naughty fist. No, you didn't do that. You got angry and couldn't control yourself and used your fist to belt that person. You don't cut your hand off because it was naughty. Jesus is not telling you what to do here. He is expressing the fact that the behavior that manifests itself into sin is so serious, he is saying, you don't be a bloody idiot. Motor accident commission. <laughs> don't drink and drive. Don't hit people. Don't do things that cause you to sin because guess what? The things that cause you to sin can cause other people to sin. And the only thing that's worse than you singing, sinning, or singing in my case, <laughs> is for your behavior to make other people sin. And he is... You get the feeling it's important to him. He really hates behavior that causes other people to lose their faith. And so he, he goes to this, it's called hyperbole. In other words, he exaggerates a lot to get the point across. But people who read it who say, no, if, if, your, if your foot offends you, you should cut it off because you could go to hell because you haven't cut that foot off, are idiots. Do not listen to them. Okay, finally... He describes the personal development goals of the organization. And I know you're thinking, where does he do that? He talks about salt. Verse 50, salt is good for seasoning. Amen. 
But if it loses its flavour, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. A lot of us don't realise the fact that it's not actually the flavour of salt that's important. It's what salt does to the flavour of the food. It actually, if you haven't put too much on there, fries, um, who puts too much on their fries? Come on. If you haven't put too much on there, it brings out the flavour of the rest of the food. But who knows that if you've eaten something that you shouldn't have, the best way to get it back up again is to drink salt, salt water. Too much salt will make you throw up. Too much flavour will put people off. We're actually called to be a people with the qualities of salt. We are there to be enhance other people's lives. We're not there to drown them in our own flavour. We're actually there to tease out the strengths, the, the, the subtleties, the blessings in, the, in their lives. And so Jesus says, we ha- must have the qualities of salt among ourselves and live in peace with each other. So that, who knows that living in peace with somebody else requires personal development? Who's on the journey? Who's got there? We'll pray for you afterwards because you're lying. Um, We're, we're called to actually change ourselves. We're called to be the salt. Salt doesn't lose its flavour. In fact, if you read up on it, Jesus isn't implying that salt can become tasteless, but he is implying that it can lose its effectiveness in flavouring food, either by not putting enough or by putting too much. And so how do you make it salty again? You actually have to look at the salt. We have to look at ourselves. We have to readjust ourselves. It's the personal development of our own life that's important in this organisation. So we're called to bring out the best in others. And Jesus tells us here that we have to retain those qualities that make us a blessing to those around us. So there you go. These are the qualities and the characteristics of a a yet non-existent organisation called the church. The poor disciples are unaware that this organisation is going to come into being. And yet here Jesus has described to them perfectly what he expects of it. Now you sort of think, well, why did he do that? Because they're obviously clueless. But the thing is that he knew that this organisation was only going to come into being at his death. He wasn't going to be there to actually describe this stuff to them. He had to get it into them beforehand. They had to have aha moments once he died to say, that's what he was talking about back there. This is what he meant. This is what we need to do. This is what's important to Jesus because he'd already told them. They might have been clueless now, but later on they had to reach back into their memories and understand what Jesus was getting at back then. And we can tell from the disciples' lives that they got it. But here he was preempting what they were called to do under the guise of telling them what seems on the surface to be unrelated story. But he's actually laying down the foundation of the church, the underpinning guiding principle, the behaviour he expects, the people 
that they're called to attract. How to attract those people. The dangers of sin and how we need to grow as his people in our church. Those principles, strangely enough, still hold true today. We serve a loving and a living God. Amen? Don't you hate it when people say that? I don't know why I do that. It's because I hear other people do it. Amen is a Hebrew. I don't speak Hebrew. What I mean is, do you agree with me? Good. See, got a better response if I don't speak a foreign language. We're all called to serve. Am I right? Who loves serving? Who'd love to serve more? Quick, look at those, where are those hands? <laughs> we're, we're a people of faith. That's, that's our distinctive. We are faith-filled people. We have a faith in a living and loving God. We are a, a community of faith. It's the glue that binds us together. And that faith should be the thing that gently seasons the lives of those around us. As we grow in that faith, the effect that we have, that our seasoning has, increases. This, in this short passage of Mark, embodies the future church that Jesus is dreaming of at this point. The disciples have no idea, but Jesus is placing something in their hearts and in their spirits, which is going to rise up on his death and resurrection and take over this world. We are part of that. We need to understand what we're part of. We need to be proud of what we're part of. But we need to be participants in what we're part of. Because that's what Jesus is doing. He's preparing people for participation in the church. The church of Jesus Christ. Not yet there, but already being planned in Jesus' mind. Let's all stand. See, it intrigues me about Jesus' planning. Because often, I don't know, I've looked at life and, and sometimes to me life seems haphazard. Things happen. Sometimes they come out of left field. Okay. I'm sure David didn't actually intend to fall off the ladder yesterday. Life throws us curveballs sometimes. And, and because we're not in control, we often have this idea that Jesus isn't in control. But he is. Just because we fall off a ladder doesn't mean he's fallen off the throne. Just because we sin doesn't mean that he's lost hope in us. And so the fact that back here, before the disciples were even ready to get involved in church, Jesus is planning this church. He's planning for them to be involved in his kingdom. And I believe the same thing happens today. There are people who do not know what Jesus is talking about. They sometimes do not even know that Jesus is talking to them. But Jesus is actually planning their involvement in his kingdom. But the thing is, Jesus' recruiting pro process is more subtle. Jesus invites everybody into his kingdom into a place in his church. So his recruitment's fairly simple. Yep, you want to join? Come in. 
but we have to accept that invitation. It's a bit like if you've been for a job interview and they like you, because they would like you, because you're perfect for the job. At the end of the interview, if you've got the job, they actually turn a piece of paper around and say, sign here. Acknowledge to us that you are willing to take up this position. And so it is with the kingdom. Jesus has invited everybody to be part of that kingdom. But to come into the kingdom and be acknowledged as a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, he requires that we actually not sign a document, but actually make a statement to say, okay, I'm going to give up my old job and I'm going to take on a new job as part of your church. Now, it's not a job. Don't get me wrong here. But we, we, we actually have to discard our old life and take on a new life with Jesus at its head. And that invitation is open to every single person on this planet. But to actually start a job, and who knows that when you start a job, you're not an expert. It takes a while to become one. And the same with, I mean, Jesus doesn't ask experts. He's not into recruiting experts. He's into recruiting people who are willing to go on a journey with him. And all he requires is that if we elect to take that journey, that we are prepared to say, okay, Lord, I put away my old life. I take on a new life. You are my Lord and Savior, and I'm following you. It's a start. That's all it is. It's a start. But we have to make that start. So I don't know where your heart's at this morning when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, but I want to offer you an opportunity in just a moment if you haven't before ever made a start in walking with Jesus or you may have made a start but somewhere along the way you've torn it up you've said nah okay I'm going back to my old life but you've realized that was a bad decision and you actually want to renew that relationship with Jesus I want to give you an opportunity to do that can I ask everybody just to close their eyes for a moment if that's you, you'd like to take that offer of Jesus to actually become one of his followers, part of his family, whether for the first time or whether you want to do it again. I want you right now just to lift your hand up in the air so that I can see it. And I'd love to pray a prayer of acceptance. Thank you, I see that hand. With you this morning. To start you on that journey to becoming a child of God. To following our Lord Jesus Christ. Is there anyone else who wants to make that decision? Okay. Can I get you to open your eyes? Can I ask that person who put up their hand to be bold this morning and come out and speak to me personally? Hi, I'm Chris. What's your name? Travis. Travis. Good to meet you, Travis. I'm going to ask you... That you don't have to face them. They're, they're a scary lot. Face it. Just, just talk to me. That's fine. Um, I'm going to ask you all to join in with Travis and I as we actually repeat this prayer. So I'm, going to, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to ask you to repeat it after me. So Lord Jesus Christ, I turn from my old life today onto a new path with you. I reject the devil and I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Today I am born again. Renewed renewed. in Jesus' name. name. Amen. Amen. Congratulations.
Grazie. 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 Grazie.